right? Just like I said, we got one more week after this with our Come Together series. If you are just tuning in for the first time, you're, you're kind of coming at the tail end. But we're just going through it and just talking about mainly two questions. Uh, you know, what is church and why church? You know, why? What does church look like? What should it look like? Why should we do church? Uh, even from the beginning, we see that church, even that the Greek word, it, it actually means assembly. It's, it's a people. So it's a people called out of something and to something. It's, so before it was a building, an organization, a thing you just do on Sunday morning, it was a people. Uh, a people called by Jesus to be built on him. And we've kind of used this quote from a book called Beautiful Resistance. The author's name is John Tyson. He says this, Each generation of believers is given an opportunity to tell the story of Jesus through the local church. Regardless of her history, we get to put the brilliance of Jesus on display. So we're just kind of use that as a jumping point, as a launching point of just making sure what story are we telling when we come together. Every time you come, to kel- come together, you tell a story. And part of that process, we're just talking about unity and how do we address divisions and how do we work through some of those things. And I thought I'd start off with something that, I mean, it's usually a, a big division that I see a lot of, all right? I figured I'd just hit it at the beginning, uh, which is pineapple on pizza, you know? Um, for whatever reason, I see this all the time, all right? How many are like team pineapple on pizza, all right? How many are like, that's the most disgusting thing? Oh, see, there's some of you, all right? You guys know a little bit of what I'm talking about. You know, it gets kind of heated. Uh, If you're familiar with the chef, Gordon Ramsay, uh, he says this quote, you don't put bleeping pineapple on pizza. He's very strongly against it, all right? And, uh, you know, yes, um, I'm... You know, to be honest, I I don't mind a good Hawaiian pizza, Um, but uh, I like the meme culture here. We have some, you know, you have two different ways of looking at it, but even the list of um, why Hawaiian pizza is the worst, you know, it works its through, and then at the very end, the only thing worse is its fan base. Like, there's just something about hating on people, right? And so... um, I thought this was funny. I read this story uh, where a college student uh, tried to order pizza. She tried to get pineapple added to like her barbecue chicken pizza. And, but when the, when the pizza arrived, uh, she opened up the box. There was no pineapple. There was just a note that said, couldn't bring myself to put pineapple on it. That's gross. Sorry. And then they taped $5 onto the box. Just pineapple on pizza. Like just couldn't do it. Um, but in the same article, which if you're wondering what I do on a weekly basis, I read articles about pineapple on pizza. Um, there's a guy who quoted this, and I think it helps summarize this in a little bit where we're going to use as a launching point. He said, the author of this article said, others thought hating on Hawaiian pizza was just a safe way to hate, period. Maybe even a method to transfer your loathing of another group onto an inanimate foodstuff. Hate was seen as a sign of your tribe. I think, there's, I think we're in a culture now where we are so disconnected that we are now grouping together by hating things, said Teddy Amanabar, editor of the Post's Post audience engagement team. I think it's just a way to hate on other people. It's pineapple on pizza, right? But it's a way to form some sort of grouping to come together to be against something. Right? We actually have a word for that uh, that's called tribalism. Have you ever heard this word, tribalism? I have a, 
uh, a graphic there. Tribalism um, just mean can mean discriminatory behavior or, out, or attitudes toward out groups based on an in-group uh, loyalty. So what happens, this in-group, they form an in-group, they draw a line and say, if you're in the line or if you're inside these lines, uh, we're, uh, we have a higher value, and if you're outside of our lines, you have a, a lower value or a lower worth. Um, and it could be, we can draw all different types of lines, right, in our culture and in our world. I mean, even just, I just read, you know, in, in Ukraine, in this situation, one of the solutions is to dry, draw a line, right, and make a, an east and west Ukraine, just to draw a line. Of course, that could be, those lines can be drawn on belief, theological, political positions, uh, race, gender. It's, again, an assigned value and worth, again, of those outside of our line or our circle. Right, we see this, you could obviously, this is part of it, is racism, that sort of thing, describing a line and a value to people based off their race or ethnicity. I was just reading, uh, too, uh, Shoal Creek Golf Course. It's a golf course outside of Birmingham, Alabama. It's actually designed by Jack Nicholas. It's consistently listed as one of the top uh, best golf courses in the top, I think it's usually top 50. But in 1990, this is 1990, Shoal Creek had no African-American members. And uh, it began having some controversy. There's a PGA event that was being held at this golf course, and they found out, wait, why are there no African-American members? And the owner, the founder, Hale Thompson, said this, that they would not be pressured to accept African-American members, stating, this is our home, and we pick and choose who we want. Again, do you see this idea of we have this group loyalty, and we're assigning value to another group of individuals, and this case was based off their race. So again, this is, a, this is a, an, a cultural thing we see on earth all the time, just assigning values, ins and outs, and I, there's, I, could, I don't have time to go through all of it, uh, but this is the story, right? When people come together, they're telling a story about someone's value. And I don't know about you, but uh, when we come together as a church, right, I, that's not a story I want to tell, right? I don't think that's a story we want to tell as a people where we assign a certain value based off uh, political belief, um, skin color, uh, language, where they're from, nationality. Uh, how do we tell a different story? And I'm gonna talk through a little bit, because uh, I want us to tell one of the things that I've just been impressed on, that as a church, like we need to tell a kingdom story. Like a kingdom story of like heaven on earth. What does that look like if we told a kingdom story? Uh, Charles Montgomery, he's a former um, campus pastor at the East Campus uh, with Vineyard Columbus, and we were at an event, I don't know, a few weeks ago, and he shared this story, um, and he's now, he's kind of over this associations of st strategic director, I think is his official title, where now Vineyard USA has different associations uh, for African Americans, for women in leadership, for Asian Americans, for Hispanics, for all different types of people, and so he was telling this story. Uh, there was a guy who uh, needed to get his shoes fixed, and so he was looking at it, uh, the clock and looked up, okay, that this shoe repair guy is going to close really soon, so I better get there so I get these shoes fixed before he closes. So he, he rushes down to the shoe repair shop, he pulls in, and he sees no cars whatsoever in the parking lot. He's like, oh, I missed it. They must have closed early. So he's about ready to pull out, and he looks, and he sees a light on inside, and he sees a guy in there. So he's like, okay, maybe they're still open. So he pulls in, he goes in real quick, and he's like, hey, are you guys still open? And he's like, yeah, what, what do you need done? Uh, I can fix uh, your shoes. And so 
He starts talking, gives him a shoe, shows him what uh, he needs fixed, and he's like, hey, I noticed when I pulled in there was no cars. I thought you guys uh, were closed. Do you, not, do you walk here, or where do you live? He's talking to the shoe uh, repair owner. And he, he pointed uh, to uh, this, this door that was open a little bit, and there was a light in there, and you could see there was a set of stairs that went upstairs to some kind of apartment. And he says, upstairs, that's, my, that's where I live. That's my home. I just work down here. And this is our mindset, right? As followers of Jesus, we are kingdom people, right? Where our home is up there. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. We just work down here, right? And so what, is it, what does it look like to tell that kind of story? Philippians 3, Paul would say our citizenship is in heaven, and that word citizenship is actually another word for colony. It means like in the uh, Philippi was a colony of Roman, uh, Romans. And sometimes, um, of Rome, I'm sorry. Some of us think of colony in a negative context, but this was like an, a, a status that they coveted. Because if you were a Roman citizen, it came with all these privileges, or it came with all these things. So you wanted to be a colony of Rome. And so Paul is saying, what, you got to look at this self, you got to look at yourselves as a colony of heaven as a colony of God's kingdom, and then that's the story we get to live out. You guys follow me as with me? So how do we tell a kingdom story? How do we actually put Jesus on display that people get a taste of heaven on earth? So we're going to curse, going to Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to the very end. It's the last book of the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 7. Give you a little context. This revelation was written by a guy named John. John was a disciple of Jesus. He wrote the book of John in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He's the one who referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he'd been given this vision with Jesus, and Jesus gives John this command. I want you to write on a scroll what you see. I want you to send it to these seven churches in Asia. So this is one of the visions that he saw. In verse 9, it says this. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. I'm going to stop right there. So this is one of the visions that, that John has. These, this vast multitude of people with white robes, and they have palm branches. White signified, actually, victory. So some of us think white flags mean surrender, like you're losing. But in this culture, white meant victory. Palm branches were meant to use as, as a victory parade. This kind of has this uh, parade imagery of those marching through the streets after a victory. These are the ones who are victorious. And it says right here, it's from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This, it's a fourfold phrase, right, that combines the language. And it's, it's, John is using the stress that it's like this all-encompassing of what it looks like of, of God's people. I'm going to talk through that a little bit in a little bit. But John actually uses that phrase seven times in the whole book of Revelation, this idea of every tribe, tongue, nation. Uh, language, uh, people. Even uh, Revelation 5 says this. He took the scroll, which again was this message from the Old Testament prophets basically of how the kingdom of God was going to break in. 
And the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and a golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. See this? There's, there's similarities between these two. I want to bring a, both of these because we're going to go through this a little bit of what this means for us to how do we have tell a kingdom story because it, it comes with a redefining of three things, a redefinition of God's salvation plan, a redefinition of what makes God's people, his family, and then even a redefinition of how we ascribe value to people. So if you think about the Judaism, I'll put this graph on this, or put this image on the screen here. When you thought of, of um, the Israelites, the Israelites were supposed to be these people set apart from all these other nations. Right? They were supposed to be distinct. They were supposed to be set apart. People would know, okay, these are the Jewish people. And they, ha- they all look the same. They all speak the same language. They all follow the same laws. They would be set apart. And, and God's uh, plan, salvation plan, was uh, out of this, out of this group of people, there would be a Messiah who would come and he would actually conquer all the nations. Because at the time, you know, all these different nations worshipped different gods. And they had all these different ways in which, like, they would sacrifice their kids and all these uh, immoral things. And, and Jesus, or God, asked these people to be separate, be different from all these nations. And this Messiah would come and he would conquer their enemies. And everybody thought this warrior-type mentality, right? This, this line of Judah is a phrase that you would have heard. Um, which meant like this conqueror person is going to conquer the nations. So this is the image they would have had. But what did, they, what, did, what did John see? He saw a slaughtered lamb, right? So it's just even a ref, redefinition of how we think about our enemies, of who's different than us. Uh, there was this exclusivism of Judaism that prided itself on being chosen uh, out from among the nations. But now it's, it's being redefined as, as a different people. And so now we have this lamb, and then now we have a redefinition of God's uh, people, all right? And so I have this image here, and excuse my artistic abilities, but this is how I tried to want to visualize this idea of, of revelation, this idea that the slaughtered lamb at the center, right? The, the, the key thing that united all these people, right, was worshiping this slaughtered lamb who, who instead of conquering their enemies, died for the enemies, right? And so there's this multitude of people. So now there's this redefinition of what God's people look like. It's not this, again, exclusivism of Judaism. It says it's a whole new kind of human community. Again, it says more about what they come together around, which is the object of the unity, rather than the people themselves. The people purchased by the blood of the lamb are to be distinct, but instead of being separated from all other nations as one nations, they are now members of every nation on earth. What you see here is, is it doesn't even bleach out all the differences. It's not, there still remains the distinctness, distinctiveness of each of those people groups. The languages, all those different things remain intact and celebrated, right? But they are now all together. And also, so what you see here uh, in the next line, you see that a kingdom story not only has unity, but also has uh, diversity, right? You can't tell a kingdom story without both unity and diversity. And so how do we do that? 
how do we have both unity and diversity? And what we see here in Revelation, again, unity, it's, it's a worship around the, sac- the slaughtered lamb. How do we have diversity where everyone's, all, all these different tribes, languages, and tongues? It requires a redefinition of how we value people, was this other thing. A redefinition of how we value people. So I'm going to ask you this. How do you determine the value of something? You guys have an idea? Maybe what you'd be willing to buy for it, right? Pay for it. So uh, if, if what I, so often there's like baseball cards, right? That determine all these specialized baseball cards, right? What its value is, who's, whoever would be willing to pay for that amount, right? And if, you, if you're familiar with like NFTs, anybody here any familiar with NFTs or at least know what they are, right? I'm having my heart trub, trouble, like my brain is like, what are NFTs? Like these digital cryptocurrencies, I mean, I got really lost when, this is a pretty extreme example, where a, a woman was selling her farts as NFTs, which I don't know how you, how does that even make sense? Because she was selling it in a mason jar and then shipping it to people, and then her doctor was like, that's actually causing some digestive problems, you should do it, uh, and stop doing that. And so she did an NFT of her fart, which some of you are like, I missed my calling in life. <laughs> You just like, some of you are like, I got a side hustle. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't going to say it. But um, I share that story because I got all your all attention, right? What, what's the price on a person, a people group? In Revelation, we see, right? It says, because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by what? Your blood. Do we want to know what, what we're worth? You personally, how much, how much are you worth? Worth enough that Jesus was willing to die, to spill his blood for you? And if we think about all these other lines or these things, uh, people groups, right? How would we place value on that? I think it hopefully redefines us that when we try to make a line or a circle around a, a value or a worth, we go through what, what was Jesus willing to pay for that group. You guys follow me? That's, that should be how we should determine value. Jesus, in a, in a world of NFTs or whatever anybody's willing to spend on all these random things, Jesus was willing to lay down his life for every person, every tribe, every, every tongue. It didn't matter. Jesus paid the ultimate price. And that should that should determine the value of a people. So again, we see that, that this kingdom story is a story of both unity and diversity. And when we do that, we blur the lines of these either-or categories that often comes and, and we assign specific value to. Uh, Galatians 3.28 says this, For those of you who are baptized in Jesus have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. There used to be this ancient rabbinic prayer that was pretty common, which, which a devout Pharisee thanked God that he was not born a Gentile, he was not born a slave, and he was not born a woman. 
But in, in the kingdom, Paul is saying in the kingdom, when you're one in Jesus, none of those either-or categories matter. They're blurred, right? Of, there's no value assigned to either-or. They still remain distinct, but there's no value in those. I look at the life of Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus, he was continually blurring these lines that people tried to make and ascribing certain value or lesser value to a people or people group. If you think about Jesus, even the story of the Samaritan. Uh, the Samaritan was a place that, again, the Jewish people would thought less than of, and people would actually travel and go around, even though it was a longer way, they would go around the part of Samaria so they didn't have to interact with this people group. Yet Jesus goes right in to the, the center uh, of that town, meets a woman at a well, and, and from then on, the people of Samaria knew about Jesus. If you think about uh, women, specifically a woman who was a prostitute, he again blurred that line and assigned new value. Tax collector, a person who was uh, seen as a major traitor to the people of, of, of Israel, who sold out to the Romans uh, to, to take benefit and to get rich off their own people. Right? Jesus blurred that line, said, okay, come follow me. He, he Think about just children. Children, right, were seen as having little or no value to, to people. And there's an instance where these kids wanted to go up to Jesus, and the disciples were like, no, 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 kids can't come to Jesus. And what does he say? He says, come to me. Let them come to me. Uh, I could go on. Even the Roman centurion, these Roman uh, uh, officer, who was, who was just, their job was to just walk around occupying the, the Jewish people. And Jesus has an instance where he heals one of his servants. Jesus continued to blur the lines of either or of what is value. And that's what we do as, as a kingdom story as we blur the lines that so often as a culture, as a people, we try to make. Now, how do we do that? How can we blur the lines? And, and I know this, this I want you this, I'm using race and ethnicity as an example, but there's all types of examples, right? How do we blur this line uh, in this church or in, the, in our culture and our community? I mean, even think through, I know probably all of you are thinking, right? In, in Lancaster, Ohio, uh, there's not a whole lot of diversity, right? We say what it is. <laughs> 2013, there was a report that came out and based off different criteria, listed Lancaster as one of the least diverse cities in all of America um, based off different population and different things. So in one instance, right, there is this, but I would say things are beginning to change. Um, and again, uh, and I'm, I'm not just using even the race thing or uh, ethnicity thing or languages. It's, it's an all thing, right, in all lines, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's all these different things, but just ensuring that we aren't setting lines that Jesus would be the one coming back through and blurry. Do you guys follow me? So one of those ways um, is we need to kind of get out of our filter bubble. Filter bubble is re reference to, um, to a Facebook algorithm, if you're familiar with any of this. So there's algorithms on Facebook, in case you didn't know. Um, it kind of helps dictate what you see on social media, all Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, they all have algorithms that, based off calculations and different things and knowing who you are, uh, are very strategic in showing you what they want you to see. Um, a little scary. Um, just, uh, but, and the reason they do that is they want to capture your attention. Because the longer you're on their app, right, the more revenue they get. 
The more ads they, you see, uh, the more things that, so what they try to do is they try to create an echo chamber where you see mainly the things uh, that you would most likely agree with. So, or you see the things that are like way out there that you would wanna like argue and fight with people over, right? So there's usually those two extremes. Um, and it's, and uh, one of those consequences is we end up surrounding ourselves with, with people who have the same ideas, interests, and even the political thoughts that reinforce what we already believe. And what happens is they're noticing this has led to a brazing, demonizing of people who think, other, uh, think otherwise. And what, one of those consequences are we are increasingly distanced from people with whom we disagree with. So, how do we just change our whole mindset, whether it is something that deals with political, whether it deals with different ideas, race, ethnicities, all these different thoughts. How do we, can we change this narrative of this story of just increasingly distancing ourselves from people who think differently than us? There's a book that I thought was really helpful. Uh, it's called The Deeply Formed Life by Rich uh, Valadez. And he, he shares three practices we can do that I would encourage each of us all to do. The first one is this idea of leaving our world. To let go of the familiar, to take the risk and to step out, especially with regard to even race or culture or whatever. To kind of leave our little niche of everything that we is familiar with us. Then the second thing is once you leave that, enter into someone else's wor world. Practice active, humble, and curious listening. Listen to understand, not to debate or to win over, just to listen to listen. Um, and then the third thing was even to allow yourself to be formed by others. Open up to their worldviews while holding on to yourself. So if we do these three things, we, we get outside of our bubbles and we actually listen to people, not debate people. We listen to their stories. And then we allow some of their stories and their thoughts to actually, uh, we can let them form us, again, with a kingdom mindset to hold on to ourselves. And I want to share this and how it's, uh, as I look at those three things, how I, I, even my life, how that's impacted me. So as me, I've noticed I'm not one who's outside of a lot of circles. I'm a white, middle-class male, right? Uh, there's just this, and, and some things I've heard from different stories, uh, I haven't been left out of a lot of circles or lines that have drawn against me. Now, I would say now that I'm a senior pastor, there definitely has been some lines <laughs> that I have found myself on, and that's okay. But what I would say is I grew up just outside of a county school. Uh, I can remember, uh, even as an elementary, we had one African-American boy that came and moved into our, our district. And I remember, so, I remember coming home and telling somebody this, or telling the, the story to somebody, and the first question I got was, are they good at basketball? So, didn't grow up with a lot of diversity. And I can remember certain jokes and things. I, I, I can remember very little diversity in my high school. Um, so, I went to Ohio State, and as a freshman, I got roommate, uh, my roommate was a guy named Jeff, who is an African-American from downtown like Akron. You couldn't probably pick two more different people in Ohio to room together. 
And uh, it was a great experience. It was, uh, was eye-opening. Uh, it's one of those I look back on and I go, I actually wish I could go back and just learn more, uh, just to ask questions, uh, knowing what I know now, just to like, hey man, tell me about your upbringing. Uh, and I just didn't have that mindset. We were just so different. Um, I, uh, you know, it, we hung out and did different stuff, but I look back and go, I, I definitely didn't have that curiosity that I wish I would have had. Uh, and so moving on, I, I started, uh, but I came to know Jesus at Ohio State. I began uh, work, uh, volunteering in um, this Bridges International. It was a, uh, uh, a ministry for uh, international students. And so I began leading Bible studies with those from China, South Korea. Uh, and it was just so nourishing. I remember just like asking a lot of different questions. Uh, I, I had these experiences where in what, the following summer I went to Montana and got to spend uh, uh, a summer in a Native American um, reservation and got to hear some of their stories and hear what they went through. Uh, I got to spend uh, uh, five months uh, with uh, people from all over the world, uh, but mainly Hispanic people, Hispanic people who actually worked for, like got visas to work uh, in the United States, and I heard a little bit of their stories of how they were treated. Um, you know, they were from Costa Rica, different things, but how they were treated in America, you know, obviously one of the first things was being called Mexican, even though they weren't from Mexico, right? All these different stories. I got to go to Haiti and, and just read about not only uh, uh, that experience, um, but even what role America even played in, in some of uh, what they're going through. And there's all these different things, all these experiences. And what I realized is I got to leave my world. I got to step out. I got to hear stories. And sometimes I look back and I go, man, I wish I would have even had more curiosity. And, I, and even some of those thoughts formed and shaped who I was. And what I can say now, and I think this is the point, is when we do this thing, and we get not just with multiple cultures or ethnicities or just people different than us, people who go through different things, whether it's socioeconomic, what ends up happening is we, if we tell this kingdom story, our lives are actually going to be enriched. Our lives will be enriched by those different from us because, right, they're not enemies, right? They're people that we are worshiping Jesus with. And, and, and then our individual quality, skills, and cultures, and ethnicities, when we come together, we can collectively share this expression of who Jesus is. We get to put on the Jesus on display when we come together. And uh, I know from my life, if I didn't have those uh, experiences, uh, my life wouldn't be enriched. And, I, and I'm not saying here I've arrived. Uh, last year, I had, um, my, my parents were watching Levi, and he, they, you, know, you know the story, Jesus loves the little children, you know, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, right? They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. So Levi's singing this song, and uh, he asked my mom, he goes, Mom, what color am I? And uh, my mom's like, well, Levi, you're white. And he goes, uh, why don't I have any black friends? And... Um, I heard that story, and uh, my heart just sank of, oh, that, that, that hurt me, because I know my life has been enriched by um, being among people who are different than me, and I, there was this, oh, I didn't want that for my kids, right? 
because there is something about coming together and, and having exposure. I could tell you uh, some of my most intense, intimate experiences with Jesus happens to be with worshiping in another language with other people. Worshiping in Spanish. So this happened in San Antonio I, uh, I, this past January. We came together for the, this thing I'm in, and we started uh, singing a Spanish song, and I just wept uh, because it was just a taste of heaven uh, that I have longed for, that I've, uh, have, I've, I haven't gotten to experience much. And so this is just, uh, I know there's a lot of different things. I'm going to kind of wrap this up for us. But as a people, if we are going to come together, we cannot come together just in unity. We cannot come together just in unity, just, but it, it creates some intentionality to also do unity with diversity. And making sure we ourselves are not creating lines and ascribing value that's different from Jesus. And while the part of the work, as our home is in heaven, as citizens in heaven, of working in here is this idea of making sure we're, we're, when we see lines, we're, we're helping in the process of blurring those lines.